Hey guys, before we get started, I want to tell you about the upcoming Nomad Summit in Tbilisi, Georgia. It's going to be the weekend of May 22nd, the 24th, 2020 in Tbilisi. It's going to be really, really fun. And you can check out the lineup as well as get some more info and tickets at nomadsummit.com. Welcome to the Travel Like a Boss podcast, where we interview location-independent entrepreneurs that travel the world like a boss by being their own boss. Here's your host, Johnny FD. Hey guys, this is Johnny and welcome to episode 243 of the Travel Like a Boss podcast. I'm sitting here in Weligama, Sri Lanka with Tal Brayman. Welcome. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Glad to be here. Yeah, I'm excited. Uh, actually, how did we meet? You want to go over that story? Yeah, so uh, we met two years ago. I was in Chiang Mai for the very first time. And before that, I was following your podcast for years. Uh, and you were the one who inspired me to go out to Chiang Mai. I went to the Nomad Summit in 2018 and had a blast over there. And then we haven't seen each other until two years later at the Nomad Summit. Oh, no, actually in Ukraine. In Ukraine, I happened to see you in Kiev. And we had a few days together just hanging out there with digital nomads. And then, yeah, the Nomad Summit 2020. And now here we are in Willigama, Sri Lanka. Yeah, that's crazy how, as nomads, we end up bumping into each other in so many different places in the world. And especially the Nomad Summit being an annual event, or now twice a year, we have people that use it as an excuse to go back to Chiang Mai or to go to you know whatever the next destination is just to reconnect with other friends and then travel together after. Yeah, uh, I think there's there's these hubs around the world, like Kiev, Ukraine. I think Tbilisi, Georgia is coming up as a hub. There's Lisbon, Chiang Mai, Bali. And when I started traveling, it was so unreal to meet someone in Ukraine and then see them in Thailand. But now that I've been doing this for four years, it's so natural. It's like, oh, hey, you know, it's not even a surprise that I see them on the other side of the world when it's part of these, uh, you know, big nomad uh, meetings and things like that. Yeah, it's it's so crazy and it's so fun to be able to do that because with Sri Lanka, the reason why I created the the group this time was last year I came by myself and I really loved Sri Lanka and I, I was like, this place is amazing. It's cheap, weather is good, it's clean, has great surfing. It's like the better version of Bali and the only thing I was missing is a community and that's when I thought, you know what, after the Nomad Summit, let me get a group together of people who are already in Chiang Mai, people who attended and say, let's just all come together and it's been a blast. Yeah, yeah. It's part of the reason why I wanted to come here. I heard you and a bunch of other people talking about it last year. Uh, and when I saw that you were trying to get people to come to uh, to Sri Lanka, this idea of almost importing a community into a place you like that doesn't have one was so fascinating to me. Because although I like to travel to the hotspots myself, I also really love going to places where people haven't heard of or people haven't discovered it much. Because I find a lot of times they're more authentic, they're sometimes cheaper, and uh, the locals are happier to see you in places where over-tourism isn't a problem yet. And so... I was really fascinated with whether this is going to work out. And now that we've been here, you know, for a month doing weekend trips and uh, having all these great experiences together, I'd say it's a success. You've been able to bring that community into this place that didn't have it before. And now it's so much more interesting with like-minded people around. Yeah, and I really hope it, it continues even after I leave because that group started with, you know, just a handful of people. Now we just hit over 100 members and it's called Cowork and Surf Willigama. It's on Facebook if you want to come here. And I'm, my, my goal is for that group to continue and nomads to kind of continue staying here. Because I, I think there's a few people who are staying another month or two. And hopefully there'll be more people coming, you know, during after that time. And they'll stay a few months and it'll just kind of continue year round. Yeah, and with that group, the engagement is crazy high. Like, we'll post, uh, you know, a dinner, and then 20 people will show up. We don't even have enough chairs in the restaurants for all those people. And there's some other groups that are, you know, 30,000 people, but you can barely get, you know, a couple people together in one room. So even though it's just starting and it's small, when you look at the followers or the, you know, the members, that engagement is high, and it's very tight-knit group of people that are keen to do anything. Yeah, and we've done a lot of cool stuff so far. Yeah. So talk about some of those weekend trips you've done. Yeah, so the first one we did was to Yala National Park. Uh, so Johnny's done a safari before in Sri Lanka. A lot of us haven't, and we thought it might be cool to get a group of us going. And that was an interesting experience. Uh, I liked it. I don't think I would want to do it again, but it was so cool to be on a Jeep, see all these animals. I had a zoom lens, which really helped because the animals were quite far. 
One thing I didn't like about it is the amount of jeeps there. You know, there's an animal. There could be five or six jeeps just standing and you know stopping in front of it. Um, but then the second trip we did was to uh, the rainforest called Sinharaja, and that was really cool to be out in nature, you swim in waterfalls. Um, and the last one we did was to the snake farm. We did that a couple days ago. That was a lot of fun. You know, we got to go to a, a local Sri Lankan house and see all these different types of snakes and play with them, touch them. But also it was very informative and it seemed like the owners really cared for the snakes instead of just wanting to make money with from tourists. And so that was really cool. Yeah, so, so the way that fake snake farm started here in Walagama is he was... I think third generation, his dad and maybe his grandpa uh, were also kind of snake handlers. And people in the village would just call him saying, hey, there's a snake in my uh, house. Can you come kill it? And he would say, I'll come get it, but I'm not going to kill it. You know, there's no reason to. It's Let's just release it back into the jungle. And, you know, obviously, and he would go deep in the jungle. So obviously he's not going to drive there every, you know, every day, every week. So he would just keep him in his house, you know, until the next time he went, usually like once a month or something. And during that time, you know, he would show him, you know, show him to interested people. And it kind of became a side business where now, you know, tourists like us who want to be able to see uh, these, you know, crazy Sri Lankan snakes. I mean, literally some of them are only exist in Sri Lanka and, yeah. and nowhere else in the world. And we can see them. And he only has, I think, you know, eight boxes where he can keep them or like snake. They're, they're, they're pretty big size, like snake... Uh, I don't know, snake homes, I guess. And once they kind of fill up, then he'll drive over to the jungle, release them deep in there. And that way, every month or two, uh, there's actually new snakes because people are always calling him to grab, come get the snakes. And, you know, he'll drop off some, some ones that he's had for a while and we get some new ones. Yeah. Yeah, it was really cool. And tomorrow we're going to go to the mountains in the middle of Sri Lanka, so near Ella, and do a bunch of hikes there. And I'm excited for that. That's going to be really fun as well. Yeah, I'm really excited for that too. And you've actually been there before, right? Yeah, yeah. So uh, when I first arrived to Sri Lanka, because it's a new country, I felt like instead of going straight to Oligama and chilling for you know a month and a half, I, I wanted to see the country. So I took a week off uh, of work and I went all around the country. Uh, I went to Ella and then Kandy. Dambula, Sigiriya, uh, Nura Elia, Ella, and then made my way down to Marissa and here. And I think with a lot of nomads, uh, you know, when you're in that grind moment and you're, you know, so inspired and busy working, it's hard to kind of go and take a week off and do that kind of thing. And I realized, uh, you know, two months in Chiang Mai, I did see some things. I went to Pai and Chiang Rai, but most of my time was spent in my apartment really building and creating, you know, my dreams. And that came at an opportunity cost of seeing the local culture. So I wanted to take this chance to reset and do a proper trip. And then my plan was to go back into grind mode. I don't think I was able to be as productive in Sri Lanka as I wanted to, but I have no regrets. It's an incredible place. And uh, yeah, that was my inspiration to go and see a bit of Sri Lanka before I settle for a place for a month and you know be productive. That's actually a pretty smart move. I think going somewhere while you're still kind of excited, and kind of do all the touristy stuff or travel, kind of backpack around before you settle down, you know, whether it's here in Sri Lanka or, you know, wherever new country you go to. So that's kind of a, a smart a smart way to ensure you'll see something versus yeah. if you just go straight to your Airbnb and you go straight kind of into living as local, you know, it makes it a little bit harder to kind of get off your butt and be like, okay, you know, do I really want to go four hours to go see this place? Yeah. So it's funny, before I was a digital nomad or I guess feel like I'm part of that community. I was a backpacker. So for two and a half years, I would constantly have a backpack and travel through the most rural and interesting places I can find. And then when I realized that I didn't want to keep coming back to Canada because I ran out of money, that's what inspired me to become a digital nomad. But I found that if I continue that lifestyle of kind of backpacker mentality, it would be very hard for me to actually be productive and build something. So I, I realized that for my life, the best is to be a hybrid between a digital nomad that's stable, that can be productive, and that has a community place to eat, you know, a, a nice routine, and also travel and see the world. So I try to uh, have maybe two or three months of productive, stable life, and then maybe a two or three weeks of some crazy adventures, and then back to that stability and, and go through different aspects of my life based on that 
current time of my life, you know, whatever, however inspired I am to either travel or be productive. Yeah, I like that. And that's what I try to do as well. I try to stay in places for two or three months and do little weekend trips and then usually take a week off or two weeks off just to, you know, actually sightsee or do, do some kind of cool trip. You know, whether it's going on a 10-day scuba diving trip or going for, you know, like a long hike somewhere or just kind of unplugging for a bit. So as a backpacker, like you're, you're still pretty young. You're, what, 24 now? 24, yeah. So when did you actually start traveling? So I started traveling when I was uh, 18. I just turned 19, actually. And the reason I started traveling or the, the way that I started the lifestyle is quite interesting. So I had a contract. I was doing marketing work back in Toronto. I had a contract with the Pan Am Games that was coming in Toronto. It was a three-month contract. But then my grandma called me and she asked me to come to Israel you know, to do some family things. So I decided to cancel my contract. And so logically, if I was going to work for three months, I'll go to Israel for three months. So about a month into that trip, I felt a little bit lonely because my family in Israel is either 10 years older or younger than me and above. So there was an age gap. So I found a very cheap flight to Barcelona. And I thought since I'm kind of alone in Israel anyways, I might as well be alone and bored in, in Europe for the first time in my life. So I bought that ticket and I flew to uh, Barcelona. And I'm thankful for that whole experience because never in a million years back then would I buy a flight alone from Canada to Barcelona. But because you know it was this just life made it happen, I decided to go there. And at that point, uh, a weekend with meeting new people, new experiences, eating new food, seeing this new cultural experience, the architecture, the food, I realized something interesting. That was the peak of my life from the day I was born to that trip in Barcelona. I was the happiest I've ever been, the most inspired. I was meeting all these people from all around the world. And I've realized something interesting. Uh, so there's something I call geographic bias. I think there might be another term for it. And that's pretty much uh, this idea where you and your view of the world is influenced by the people around you. And because I haven't really traveled much, and if I, I did, it's you know to see family or a one-week all-inclusive resort somewhere, my view of the world was very much based on the other people's ideas in Toronto. And although Toronto is a very big multicultural city, we only get to experience the rich or the clean version of different cultures. You know, maybe the food, the festivals, the the smells and sounds, but not the poverty, not the architecture, not the the people itself. You know, with that kind of authentic core, uh, let's say, culture. And so I realized that my view of the world was so shaped by this very privileged perspective in Canada, I wanted to open it up. And so before that moment, all my money would go to things. I would have the latest new phones. I would like to, you know, buy new shoes, all this kind of stuff. After that, I realized I was living my, my life completely wrong. And I realized that if I invest into experiences or if I spend my money on experiences, I'm so much happier during that experience, but then afterwards, the people I met, the fond memories I have is so much more valuable than that speaker or laptop or shoe after you know two or three weeks of having it. Because you know once you buy something, you own it, and after a while it becomes part of your new normal, and then you want something else. That high from the purchase kind of dissipates. But when you travel or when you go to a new place, that for me at least, it might be personal, but the experience, the memories are just as valuable as being on the trip in the first place. And it really makes me grow and, and changes who I am as a person. And so after that moment, I decided I wanted to become a backpacker. That's it. Uh, and I think that's a very millennial uh, mindset is spend money on experiences and not things. I think so. Yeah. Um, a lot of people in Toronto they have that feeling, but then they'll go to Cuba for a week or Mexico for a week and all-inclusive and, or they'll go to, you know, a uh, club or, you know, music experience, things like that. So I think it's interpreted very differently depending on where you are in your life, but it's definitely more of a millennial thing. I agree. Yeah, I could definitely see that being, because in their perspective, the experience might be a one-week trip somewhere, yeah. like a festival or some, you know, all-inclusive part, you know, resort or a party or do like a one or two week thing versus right. you've kind of taken that and extrapolated it into a lifestyle where you can stretch that same amount of money 
instead of having it last one week, you're going to have it last months or even longer. Yeah, yeah. So that's what I used to do before I started, you know, traveling full time. I, I did part time marketing work in Toronto. So I worked as an experiential marketing uh, brand ambassador for uh, some pretty big brands like Samsung, Mazda, Nokia, Microsoft. And my contracts would only be one or two months and I'd make some money, live at home, wouldn't go out to eat at restaurants, wouldn't go to any parties or clubs, you know, save all my money and then travel somewhere as long as that money lasts and come home with zero dollars, find another contract, make some money and repeat. For two years I was doing that. Uh, and so for me, I realized that, yeah, I can go see a concert for $150 or I can backpack through Western Mexico for a week and a half with $150. And so even with cheap flights, I would rarely spend money in Canada because I knew how much further it goes in other places. And I'm, I'm lucky that I came to this realization while I was quite young, when I was 18, 19, because I had very little responsibilities. I had very little, uh, you know, I had no family. I had, uh, all, it's, I think it's easier to do it while you're still young. It's harder to do it in later stages of your life, but it's still possible. And there's so many examples of people on the road doing exactly that with their families or in late, later stages of their life. But for me, I think I'm quite lucky that I realized my passion so early on. So I was able to structure my life early on to facilitate traveling this much. Yeah, I definitely agree. And I actually have a video on YouTube called Less is More. It's about minimalism where that talks about that, where I, in a, I watched another video about minimalism that inspired me and what had happened was I read the comments on YouTube saying, oh, yeah, this is great for that guy. But and there's all these excuses on why people can't do it. Right? And it was a video about uh, a guy who has a small apartment in New York that transforms into different rooms. I don't know if you've seen it, but it's really, really cool. And all the comments were like, that must cost so much money to build. Uh, that, you know, that furniture is not cheap. It's expensive. That's not minimalism. Or sure, that'd be great for a single guy, but you can't do it as a couple. You can't do it as a family. And just all these you know, excuses in the comments and everyone just hating on it. And in my video, I was saying, you know, instead of getting inspired to say, how can I incorporate some of these aspects into my life? You know, people always just find excuses why they can't do it at all. Right. Mm. And I think all of us have excuses or reasons, whether it's valid or just mental, why we can or cannot do something. But until we actually sit down and say, okay, how can I actually do it? Uh, it's really, our, you know, we're, we're at a doing disservice to ourselves. And at the end of the day, all these things that we choose to to have, so you know, we choose to get married, we choose to have kids, we choose to have a house full of stuff, or we choose to uh, all these responsibilities. These are all choices that we've made along the way, and we can now either choose to keep those and have that be an excuse and why we're tied down and we can't travel and we can't do these things, or we can make a new choice and say, you know what, I'm going to give up some of these comforts and I'm going to I'm going to make it work. Even with a kid, even, you know, uh, with the household stuff, I'm going to figure out a way to make it work. Yeah. If there's a will, there's a way. Yeah. So do you miss those backpacking days being back backpacker towel? <laughs> you know, I do a bit because now that I, now that I'm working, my life is a little bit different. Although the thing is that I'm so appreciative of my life right now. I have to, the problems I have are so minimal or so, I guess, funny if you compare it to what they were back at home or what other people have back at home, that I could have that mentality of, oh yeah, I, I really miss those backpacking days, or I could try to integrate what I like from those days into my life now. So I think I found a hybrid where I work between four to six hours a day, sometimes from bed, sometimes from a cool cafe near the beach, that this allows me to travel indefinitely. It allows me to be a quote-unquote backpacker for a longer period of time. I just need to give up a tiny bit of my time and my uh, my comfort. And of course, I anticipate that changing with all these new passive income models and inspiration from the summits. But I can't say that I miss it so much because, I mean, here we are in Sri Lanka, uh, you know, working from a, a nice cafe, going for a swim, you know, surfing. There's still so much to appreciate that I don't think it's the right mindset to kind of look at what I don't have when there's so much in front of me that I have and I can appreciate. That's a good outlook. And it's funny because I still meet backpackers sometimes. Uh, one of the kind of travel hacks that, that I do is whenever I'm moving into a new city, instead of going straight into an Airbnb, I will spend the first two or three nights in a hostel. I'll, I'll usually get a private room just to have kind of the a hybrid of best of both because I don't do it uh, necessarily to save any money. I do it more 
as a way to meet other travelers, meet people in the city, meet some locals, and then do some of the touristy stuff. And while I'm there, I'm always meeting, meeting backpackers. And they'll say to me, like, you know, they'll see me on my laptop working. Uh, and usually it's, you know, let's say in the morning we go on a walking tour or something. And the afternoon we get back, I'll take on my laptop and I'll work for a few hours in the afternoon. And when they ask what I'm doing and I say I'm working, they'll say, oh, I'm sorry that you have to work. And I'll say to them, why are you sorry? Like, this is, I like, I really, first off, I really enjoy it. Second, like, this is exactly what I want to be doing right now. You know, I don't want to go on a second tour in the afternoon because right. I'm tired. I don't want to go, you know, uh, like, I want to take this break. I, I actually like sitting down, you know, either in the afternoons or every other day at a cafe and spend the whole day sipping coffee, doing some work, and then going on another tour the next day. Versus packing everything back to back to back to back. Yeah, yeah, I agree with that. And when I was in Chiang Mai two years ago, I was uh, I was at the Digital Nomad Summit, uh, the summit you organized, and I met a whole bunch of nomads. Then I went to Pai and I met a bunch of backpackers, and a lot of those backpackers ended up coming back to Chiang Mai. So I decided to organize. Uh, I called it Digital Nomad Meet Backpackers Dinner. And it was cool. There was about 20 people. I think there's like 13 backpackers and seven nomads. And it was really interesting to see the convergences between the two groups and also the differences. So the backpackers, they have, they keep asking like, how much longer do you have here? Oh, I have seven days and I'm going back to Europe, back home. So I think because they have that time limitation, they enjoy every single moment more and they do a lot more things. But then they go back to their, you know, sometimes shitty lives or just regular lives back home. While the nomads, uh, although they have, they feel like they have all the time in the world to travel. So they sometimes don't see as much they might not know as much about you know the culture or the even the cities nearby but they figure out a way to live their life in general in by their own terms so i loved seeing the differences in them learn you know learning from each other what the gaps that they have because they're they're similar groups of people but there's many differences mostly around lifestyle yeah i can definitely see that and i agree that backpackers end up doing way more. They end up seeing more, they end up doing more because of that time limitation, but also because they know that this is probably their one time they're ever going to go to Chiang Mai. Yeah. Versus a digital nomad is like, I'll probably come here every winter for you know, the next five years or however yeah. long uh, Chiang Mai is a nomad hotspot or however long Johnny keeps having these nomad summits here. Yeah. So for us, sometimes, like you know, I fall for that as well where I'm like, ah, I don't really feel like going anywhere this weekend yeah yeah i'm just gonna chill here in chiang mai because it's comfortable and i have all the time in the world to either do it this trip or next year when i get back versus backpackers are like all right i have seven days here today we're gonna go to you know uh the sticky waterfall tomorrow we're gonna go to grand canyon next day we're gonna go to this next day we're gonna go to this the only downside of that is i feel that people forget what happens like what they've done they, they mix up not only experiences, but cities or even countries. And I'm, I've, ex- I know this is a fact because I experienced this when I was traveling a lot, kind of like a backpacker, you know, basically. And I would just, you know, move too quickly where everything would be a blur. And I would, for- like, sometimes I would catch myself talking about something. I'm like, oh wait, that wasn't Cambodia, that was Vietnam. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And you know, something I noticed, backpackers and tourists always tell me this is when we, you know, we're meeting somewhere, we're going to go to a very expensive cafe or some really expensive tour. They tell me they're like, "Oh, you're only going to be in Chiang Mai once," or you know, "You're on, you're on a, you're on a trip." You know, why don't you just do it? And I realized if I have that mindset, if I'm like, "Yeah, you know, I can justify any expense because I'm on vacation or quote unquote going to be in X only once." I would spend so much more money, but because I know I'll be back here, I have a lot of time, I can be a lot more smart with my money and I can be more frugal because I don't have this, you know, tourist mindset of I want to experience everything, I want to buy everything, I want to try everything, which is expensive. That's why people on their one-week trips spend more than I I do in two or three months. Well, the first time I came to Thailand, I spent $1,000 a week. Really? I was just staying at nice hotels because the hotels were like 80 bucks a night. Which in Thailand is insanely expensive if you think about it, because now we stay at places like twenty bucks a night, or if you're getting a month long, uh, you know, Airbnb or local combination, it might be ten dollars a night. But when you're coming from the U.S. and you're used to paying, you know, a hundred dollars uh, for just a basic hotel or sixty dollars for a piece of crap Motel Six, huh. you're like, oh, eighty bucks for this beautiful resort? Yeah, that's a good value. So. 
I spent so much money as a tourist on vacation before realizing, hey, I could just move here and spend way less and enjoy life way more. Yeah. I think it takes a mindset shift and just to learn what else a city has to offer to be able to tap into that. Because back at home, a lot of people, when I started traveling, and to this day, they think I'm filthy rich, right? My parents are giving me money or all this crazy idea because they see me post photos from all these beautiful, tropical, and crazy parts of all you know different continents around the world. But the reality is that just rent back at home costs more than my whole lifestyle, everything combined. And so there's obviously this mis... Uh, you know, this change, there's difference of perception with how people think it is and how it actually is when it comes to, uh, I would say, every single part of traveling and, and being a digital nomad. Every single part. The perceptions are often wrong of how expensive it is, how lonely it must be, you know, traveling alone, how hard it is to keep constantly moving around. And yeah, if I have a tourist perspective and I have a big luggage and I, yeah, it's going to be fucking horrible to travel this long in that way. But we evolve and we change as time goes on. I get it. And you're working too. So what is your actual job? Yeah, so I work, uh, I actually hire digital nomads. So I work for a digital nomad hiring company called Support Adventure. And we have kind of two wings in the business. One of them is we are consultants to companies in the US, UK, and Canada. And we'll show them how with geographic arbitrage and with hiring remote workers, they can minimize their costs while also having really good quality support. IT support, which is what we specialize in. And on the other side, I'm uh, doing marketing for them. So I'm posting all these exciting videos and content about being a digital nomad and having all these great experiences around the world. And we're trying to recruit either people already traveling that want to become from a backpacker to a digital nomad or want to extend their travels with an income or people back home that are depressed or unhappy and want to try something different. So we hire digital nomads and we also implement remote working into Western companies. I like it. So as a Western company, let's say you're you know, a big corporation, what are some of the benefits of hiring remote workers or digital nomads versus a traditional employee? Well, to begin with, uh, most of our clients are in very expensive cities like New York, San Francisco, Toronto, London, where the local hiring pool is so expensive and also quite limited because of the competition there that it's hard to find really good quality technicians there. And also, the, the jobs, a lot of them f- have a high turnover rate because people end up finding different jobs or um, you know, being unhappy with their jobs and things like that. But we find that once they go to a remote working model, uh, employees are happier in general. Uh, they tend to stick with the companies longer. And also the costs are lower because if there's, you know, somebody sitting in Colombia or Ukraine, they don't require a three, four thousand per dollar per month salary. And so companies can minimize their costs by, uh, utilizing this. So, I mean, a word for this is outsourcing, but that has a bad reputation because there's so much Indian and Filipino companies that just find the cheapest possible way to do it. So our model is a little different to try to use digital nomads and, and backpackers and, you know, uh, expats and use the, the model of outsourcing. But instead of finding kind of those cheap uh, solutions to try to find the most culturally compatible and similar to the people who would be in London or New York anyways. So can you make kind of uh, examples that you've hired for you've hired for in the past or maybe even uh, open jobs right now? Yeah, so um, we, we specialize in IT support. So uh, all of our jobs are very similar. So we have different clients and what, what they do is they fix just common computer problems of networking issues or if the printer isn't working or anything uh, related to you know general IT problems like a password change. So we have a training program which if people don't know much about the IT sphere, they can kind of learn and then they'll start as a level one uh, IT technician with our clients and they are able to remotely solve issues. And if somebody needs to physically be present, they'll just escalate it to someone that's in office that can you know plug in a wire or whatnot. Because a lot of these companies are massive companies which have you know hundreds or thousands of employees that can easily outsource their IT support because they don't need to have a big team of IT people physically being there in the expensive city. Okay, cool. So if you're someone you know who's not very technical but you can log into Facebook, you can probably be a level one tech, right? I think so. I mean, there's some ga- knowledge gaps which we built a 
training program and like a automation to kind of see whether you can fix the problems or not. And if not, we'll find the gaps and we'll train you up. So it's not like you don't need to be a developer or anything crazy, but it's, yeah, if you can log into Facebook, you're halfway there. Okay. And I'm assuming these aren't super high paying jobs because one of the benefits to the employer is to have, you know, cost down. Uh, like, but what is like a normal hourly or monthly wage? Uh, so, I mean, it depends on the client, but I would say the range is between $1,000 to $1,500 a month, which is not a lot if you're in London. But if you are in, for example, in Colombia or in Chiang Mai, where a lot of our technicians are, the purchasing power of that is equivalent or higher to a $3,000 salary in other places. So the geographic arbitrage definitely plays a role in what people can afford. And so I used to live in Toronto. I would make, I think around $50,000 a year and I couldn't afford to live in the city center and eat out three times a day and you know party on the weekends and do weekend trips in Toronto like I'm, I'm not even close to being able to afford that there but with half that salary in Chiang Mai or Ukraine I'm able to have that and more so that's what we are kind of concentrating on the value uh, and not just comparing dollar to dollar yeah that's smart so you know if you want to live in Medellin, Colombia, or in near the beach in Mexico or in Chiang Mai, you can easily love, live off of thousand fifteen hundred dollars a month. Yeah, and you know, even though you're still working, I'm assuming eight hours a day, the rest of the day is yours to explore in the local culture on weekends. You know, you go wherever you want and. Can they move around as much as they want to, or do they need to be in one place? No, they can move around as much as they want to. Like I work for them, and I've worked out of, I think, 15 countries now, just constantly jumping around. Uh, I think it's really good for people that are starting the digital nomad uh, lifestyle and don't have their own income yet or haven't built their e-commerce sites or their websites or whatnot. It's almost like an unlimited runway to be abroad somewhere with the community while they're building their own projects on the side. Like that's how I envision it being the best. Yeah, I like it. So anyone who wants to, to travel and live somewhere kind of cool, this is your, your chance yeah. Right. How can they can either reach out to you or or find these job openings? Yeah. So uh, you can in the description write the the website. I'll give you the company website and also reach out to me. I'll give you my Facebook. Uh, yeah. So if you're interested, reach out and I could definitely hook you up with some information. Okay. What, what's the company called? It's called Support Adventure. Okay. Support Adventure. Yeah. Yeah, I like that. Uh, and we're a fully remote working team so now we have 40 people spread across 14 no 15 different countries now so even i met the founder of the company in chiang mai and he's a canadian who lives in serbia who's now in thailand and was in south africa so it's, it was it's such a remote kind of, it's like a family that's all spread across the world and it's it's quite interesting to be in that kind of environment of remote workers around the world yeah that's really cool and, and it's not just phone support it's like live chat email yeah, so it depends on the client. So once we get to know someone's skills and also the client needs, we make that connection. So because they're not working for us directly, but for our clients, every single job might look different, but it's in the same sphere of just customer support and IT support. And I'm assuming just like requirements are uh, good English skills. Yeah. Do they have to be a native English speaker? No, they don't have to be native, uh, but as long as they can communicate well enough that that very important to us. Uh, we have a lot of really talented Ukrainian and Colombian, South African. Uh, well, South Africa is a bad example because they are native English speakers, but a lot of people that aren't native English speakers but speak at a similar level. So that's totally okay for well, sure. Well, what's funny is a lot of South Africans would like to, you know, let's say teach English uh, online, but they are not considered native English speakers to, to China. Yeah, well, I think there's when it comes to what a native English speaker is, uh, for, for the Chinese perspective, it might be this kind of white privilege type rich countries. It, it doesn't, it's not even about the language anymore. It's about the passport and about the prestige. So sometimes, you know, it's, it's sad, but I have Ukrainian friends that speak perfect English. They could teach it better than we can because we kind of were raised with it. We don't know all the little specific rules, Grammar. but their pay is... What is that? Well, <laughs> no, like I think when yeah. you're a native English speaker, you know what, that it sounds right, but it's harder for you to like explain yeah, why it sounds right. If you learned it at a later stage in your life, I think it's easier to teach it but they get paid less because they're not quote-unquote native yeah. speakers. And ironically, somebody that's from you know northern England, which 
nobody can understand <laughs> is considered a native English speaker. Yeah. And I'm like, nobody from Birmingham should be teaching Chinese kids how to speak. Yeah. I know a Scottish English teacher online and I could barely understand him and he gets the native English rate. And I'm like, okay, you know, all right. Um, but it's funny. So you've heard many times when people ask me where I'm from, I could just say, oh, I'm from Canada because that's where I was raised. But I like to kind of play with these kind of uh, cultural backgrounds that I have because like, I don't think I told you, but the reason why I do that is because now that I've been traveling for a long time, I feel so much conversations are exactly the same. Hey, where are you from? What do you do? Where are you going? Oh, food's great, you know? And there's this cycle. There's this either in the digital nomad or backpacker scene, it's the same exact conversation. And I'm doing what I can to break that cycle. So I could just run off the kind of privilege that I have being a Canadian. And, you know, I look Canadian. No one's going to assume anything because of my accent. But I like to, you know, play on this kind of cultural confusion or cultural fusion, let's say. Because uh, if you think about it, the way that most people kind of construct our identities are based on, you know, our names, what we do for a living, where we're from, and maybe, you know, something else like where we're going to next or things like that. But none of those things really play a role in who we are as people. There's no depth to my name, what I do for work, which isn't even easy to explain in a sentence, uh, or where I'm from. And so, uh, like you, for example, you're from California, but when I think of someone from California, all of these uh, kind of perceptions pop up, which don't really fit your lifestyle or you today. So that's why I like to play around with my background. So my mom is from Belarus, my dad's from Moldova, uh, but back then it was the Soviet Union, so culturally we're Russian, so I speak Russian at home, that was my first language. Born in Israel, raised in Canada, I would so much rather uh, someone know that and be able to steer the conversation that way to just like, oh, you're Canada, you're from a rich country. I assume you have money and we're born this way and, you know, or blah, 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 you know, which, yeah. I absolutely understand. And I've been through the same thing. I mean, when I was a traveler, people would ask, what's your name? Where are you from? How long you been here? Where are you going next? Yeah. You know, what are your travel plans? And it was the same conversation all the time. I got so tired of it. Yeah. You know, or if I said, oh, from San Francisco, they might start talking about San Francisco for you know, 20 minutes. And I'm like, I haven't been there in 10 years. Like, I don't even know. <laughs> like, I don't know anything you're talking about. I don't yeah. care. You know, it doesn't excite me. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So the way I personally dealt with it is, first off, I'll just cut people off really quick. I'm like, you know, you're a lot nicer than me, probably because you're Canadian. <laughs> or just most people are nicer than me. But I just have very little tolerance for wasting my time anymore. So if someone starts talking about something, I'll just cut them off. I'm like, yeah, yeah, yeah. Anyways, yeah, San Francisco's great. But what I'm really excited about is... And I'll just change the subject. A less rude way to do it, which has also worked for me, is, you know, I will answer the question, but I'll also give them more information. So they'll ask, you know, where are you from? I'll say, oh, I'm from San Francisco, but, you know, and then the, that, the, with, whatever, whatever you say after the but is usually what they end up talking about. So yeah. I'll say, but I'm living in Chiang Mai. And then they will always ask me about Chiang Mai or talk, we'll talk about Chiang Mai. You know, if I say, but I'm headed to Ukraine next, you know, and then they're like, oh, why are you going to Ukraine? And then we start talking about that. And for me, that steers the conversation to something I actually want to talk about versus just kind of having that same conversation over and over like most of us end up ex experiencing if we leave it on the default. Yeah, that's exactly why I have my story when people ask where you're from. Because I love countries, I love culture, I love yeah. languages, I love you know, getting to know other people's uh, culture where they're from. And that's the perfect way to transition there. Because if I say I'm from Canada, oh, it's so nice there. Where are you going next? Or, you know, whatever. But when you, when you break the cycle of what they expect with anything other than that expected cycle of shit that we're used to for so long, that's where the, that's when the actual, conversation gets interesting and goes in more depth because how much times did someone come to you and say hey where are you from what do you do where are you going next all right and then that's it and the yeah. conversation ends there because there's nothing else right? yeah yeah but at the end of the day what it is is people are fishing for something interesting to talk about that's why back home people say what do you do for work and they're not asking you know what do you do for work they're asking who are you you know, what's your education level? What's your schedule like? How much money do you earn? What are your goals in life? They're yeah. kind of asking all these things and trying to figure out who you are. Because, you know, if someone says, oh, I'm a doctor, all of a sudden in your mind, you're like, you, you kind of have an idea of what their life is like, what their education is like, their background is like, what their future is going to be like. Yeah. Versus someone says, oh, I'm a 
bartender, I'm a you know painter, I'm an Uber driver, I'm whatever. Then we have this kind of concession of who they are, because that's really the easiest way to start that conversation and to have a, a general idea of of what someone's like. So even when I was living in LA, instead of saying, "Oh, I work at this cubicle for Honeywell, this corporate blah 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 boring job," I would say, "You know, oh, I, you know, I work for Honeywell, but I'm really into rock climbing." <laughs> Okay. And it all would just steer that way. You know, that's interesting. I never thought about that. So what you made me realize is that back in my old life, let's say in Toronto, your name, where you're from and what you do kind of puts you in that bubble of a socioeconomic uh, level. But with the digital nomad community, I think what's so interesting is people assume that, you know, there's so much that brings us together and it does, but it's such a diverse group of people with where people, you know, were raised and what they do uh, in terms of, you know, how they make their living and the places they've been. It's such a random group of people that are together with this common desire that none of that shit works. You know, if someone says that they do this or that, I don't, there's no economic bubbles or there's no hierarchy to to this you know it's just kind of like oh that's cool and that's it but yeah back home what you do your whole it shapes up where you can live what part of the city how much income you have how much free time you have and and, uh that plays a big role in your life back home yeah i definitely agree with that and it's so cool that we're able to have all these new experiences and really you know transcend who we were destined to be if we had just mm-hmm. stayed home. Yeah. You know, you'd be some, you know, some guy at a Tim Hortons right now in Canada <laughs> eating poutine with maple syrup on top. While playing hockey, yeah? Yeah, while watching hockey probably. <laughs> oh, God, no. Yeah. And your life now is, just, it's like you're, I can tell you're just genuinely happy. I'm very happy. I'm very lucky to be able to, so in the last four and a half years, I've traveled to 50 different countries. I met so much incredible people and I get so much passion and energy from this like uh you know so my plans just changed I was supposed to fly to northern Italy in seven days but now there's the whole coronavirus outbreak there I'm not actually worried about the virus itself but more and more countries are starting to ask people that have transited through Italy to either self-isolate and quarantine and I don't want it to fuck up my travel plans so instead I'm like you know what why don't I just check out Oman because I already had that flight from here to Oman and then from Oman to Milan why don't I just abandon my second part of the flight check out Oman for a couple days and then just buy a different ticket to Europe so I'm so excited to go to a completely new part of the world I have no idea what to expect but that just gives me so much energy and excitement in the world. And I don't think a lot of other things give me that level of excitement in this stage of my life than just being in some random place that I have no idea what it is. I've never heard of anyone saying, I'm excited to be going to Oman. <laughs> that might be the, the first and last time I'll ever hear that in my life. <laughs> well, I mean, I'll let you know how it is there. I'm super excited because you've never heard of it. That's exactly why I'm excited. I have no idea what to expect. That's actually a smart hack, though, because uh, – and, and this is only possible because you're flying carry-on-only luggage, right? Yeah, 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 definitely. Yeah, because a lot of people don't realize if you check in your luggage, it always goes to the final destination. But if you have carry-on, you could just abandon that flight halfway, which you shouldn't do because airlines hate it when you do that. But it's possible to do. I would say don't do it if you have a loyalty card with them and you use them all the time. Then it kind of looks bad. But if it's some random airline and you don't have loyalty with it <laughs> – I don't mind doing it. So actually, it's funny. From Oman, I booked a flight f- to Amsterdam for 70 euros. 7 euros? 70. 70. Oh, 70. Like, but it, it's two flights. It's from uh, Oman to... So it's from Muscat to Istanbul, and then from Istanbul to Amsterdam. That was 70 euros. But if I book just the Muscat to Amsterdam... Sorry, Muscat to Istanbul flight, so just the first leg, it's 130 euros. So I'm saving money by booking it th- to Amsterdam and I still haven't decided whether I'm going to go to Istanbul or Amsterdam but uh. I might just kind of uh, once again abandon my, my second leg of the flight and just explore Turkey because it's cheaper than flying directly to Turkey you know well it's funny there's actually a term for this uh, that travel hackers do I think they call it open-ended flying or something yeah so there's a there's a fuel dump which isn't in this case it's when you have three flights for example return flight from toronto to vancouver and then one random flight like i don't know auckland to melbourne like a random flight that fucks up the fuel calculation this one would be called open jaw flight i think or i don't remember the term i think that was the term i I think it was open jaw 
Yeah. And either way, I mean, honestly, I don't really spend time trying to figure this stuff out because it ends up being kind of a part-time job or maybe even a full-time job trying to save money on this. But they do exist, and, and it is a legitimate way to travel hack make money. Yeah. Well, so there's a, a tip for you guys. If you go on Kiwi.com, you can look at flights from, let's say, Muscat to Europe or from whatever airport to a continent, and it'll show you all of the cheapest flights. Actually, Skyscanner does this as well, but Skyscanner is to anywhere in the world, and uh, with this way, you can just find the cheapest flights. So for me, it didn't take a lot of research. I just saw that you know, the cheapest city in Europe happened to be Amsterdam, and that wasn't a direct flight. So, I, you know, a lot of people spend hours and hours doing deep research. I actually do that as well because I love to do it. But in this case, it was super easy because you can just find cheapest flight out of an airport, and it might have a connection. And chances are that might be cheaper than just taking the first leg of the flight because of however airlines calculate there. I think probably because just the demand for Amsterdam is lower now with the whole virus outbreak in Europe. So they're trying to ramp up sales, but Turkey doesn't have any issues now. So they don't need to discount those flights. So maybe from their perspective, they're just trying to drive demand. But yeah. for our perspective, we could just fuck with that and use it to our advantage to uh, go somewhere cheaper. But I would say, yeah, if you are a, a loyal customer with an airline, it doesn't look good. They might even confiscate points or whatnot. I've heard that happen. I have no idea if they're actually going to do that or not. I doubt they would. <laughs> but this is actually an interesting topic because right now it's March 2020. Coronavirus panic is starting to be in full rage. You know, people are hoarding toilet paper. And <laughs> it's, you know, it's, it's become a huge thing in social media on the news who knows what's actually going to happen? Maybe it might become a huge pandemic. People, you know, millions of people are going to die. Or maybe it's all blown up proportion and people are just freaking out because of news headlines and social media like they do all the time. But this is a kind of interesting topic where right now, I mean, I guess two parts is one is should we be traveling, right? Because like, I personally don't think that you or I are going to die from coronavirus because we're young, we're healthy. It's not that big of a deal. But should we be encouraging digital nomads or people in general to be going from one country to another through airports, through crowded planes, and possibly transmitting the virus, you know, or having a higher chance of catching it and transmitting it across borders? Is it socially responsible for us to be doing right now? Yeah, so it's, it's an interesting question. And to be honest, I think the answer right now is we just don't have enough information as of now because we're starting to see cases pop up in different parts of the world. They're growing rapidly. Um, I'm not too concerned about the virus itself because realistically and statistically, we are young and healthy, uh, you know, me and you and other travelers that I know. And so even if they do get the virus, I don't think they're at risk for, you know, death or any further complications. But... The thing is, I think if you let something like this, especially in the early stages, just scare you and you stay home and you, you know, you let it affect your life in a way that is negative for the way you want to live your life. I think that's very sad uh, because as of now, there's very little risk. You know, if you look at the numbers in Sri Lanka, there's zero active cases in Sri Lanka. There was one and they got recovered in Canada. There's, I think, 40 cases right now. And uh, when I posted my travel plans, a few people commented. They said, like, why are you traveling? Go back home. You know, aren't you afraid of the coronavirus? Well, from that perspective, statistically, Canada has more cases and also more international, I would say, community than places like Oman or Belgrade, where I'm going to next. So I think as long as we are smart enough to, to take in consideration the virus, maybe wash our hands more, maybe avoid the hot spots like northern Italy, for example, what I've done, while also living our lives the way we want to and not letting the fear kind of completely shut down our lives and opportunities, I think that's the right way to go about it as of now. And then obviously with more information coming in, kind of reassess that if there's any new news or developments or whatnot. But right now, it's still, I'm unsure how much of a risk this is actually going to be. Yeah, I, I definitely agree with that. And I think that's very wise, especially coming from a 24-year-old. <laughs> so you're, you're wise beyond your ages, for yeah. sure. It's because I, I started traveling so young. And uh, if I was sitting in Toronto for four years and I went to my work every day, I came home, I went to the gym, I had a normal life back at home, I'd 
probably have, let's say, X amount of experiences. But being on the road, traveling, especially in my backpacker days and even now, meeting new people, being in new uncertain places, you mature at such a quicker pace. And most of my friends are between five to 10 years older than me. And I like to be around people that have these kind of experiences and something interesting to, to talk about and to say. And in my experience, I connect much better with people in between, let's say, 26 and 36 than people in my own age group. Yeah, I can definitely see that. And, you know, even people who are older than that, I mean, I was watching, I think, The, the Daily Show, no, uh, this week, last week, tonight or something with, uh, yeah, yeah. is it John Stewart? Uh, I don't, British I, I know guy. what you're talking about. I love yeah. that guy. He's so, so good. Yeah, and I was watching on YouTube and John it, Oliver, I think John Oliver. Yeah, yeah he's great. And he had a uh, an episode about the coronavirus and people asking stupid questions <laughs> like, can I get coronavirus from eating Chinese food? Oh, man. You know, there's a place in Toronto called Wuhan Noodle. And, you know, right after oh the thing, their business went to zero yeah. to zero. And it just. Come on, like going to Wuhan Noodle, you're not going to get coronavirus from eating at a place called Wuhan Noodle. And they just, they shut down because... That sucks. Yeah, I know. And like, you know, the owners probably haven't been to Wuhan in like 20 years. Yeah. And you know, I haven't been, you know, I, I spent my time in, in Chiang Mai and Sri Lanka where there's not much Chinese tourists and they kind of blend in uh, in terms of like there's so much in Nima and you don't really notice them as much as, for example, in Toronto, when what I keep hearing is that on the subway, a lot of, uh, you know, Asian people from all over Asia would have a mask on because that's the recommendation in Asia, you know, always wear a mask to not transmit anything. And people were, would, there's a lot of racism right now in the West towards Chinese people, uh, especially in public transit and this and that. And I think that's really sad because, you know, there's so many Asian people around the world, and there's a tiny fraction of them which actually are infected, most of which are quarantined in Wuhan, yet there are, you know, Asian people that might even have, be born in North America and have, you know, third generation going back to North America, have nothing to do with Wuhan or China, yet now they're getting treated differently by people in even multicultural cities like Toronto. So it, it breaks my heart yeah. to see this kind of race-based um, segregation because of the virus, and I wonder if that's going to happen now to Europeans or to Italians. I could. I mean, and the thing is, people, people are, you know, fear makes people crazy. Yeah. And people, not everyone, not logical, smart people, <laughs> but, you know, the average, easily triggered person who watches the news, fear might freak them out. I mean, there's a, there's like a case of guys uh, beating up this Singaporean, you know, kid just walking around because he was Chinese. And nothing, he had nothing to do with the virus or, you know, or Wuhan. And it sucks, right? Like, it shouldn't happen, but it does happen. Yeah. Uh, I actually just wrote a really long blog post about it on johnnyft.com. And I actually yeah, just... Yeah, I saw that. Yeah. And I just made a video on YouTube, actually, that I'm just uploading now, kind of going through my thoughts on it. And, you know, who do, you know, who's to blame? What's the solution? What should we do? Yeah. I agree with what you wrote as well. Yeah. And kind of in general, you know, it, it's a hard situation. And by the time this episode actually comes out... You know, you guys listen to it because some people don't listen to it right, right away. They might listen listen to the you know two hundred forty episodes before this. Right. You might be thinking like, what the hell are you guys talking about? Like <laughs> that was like not a big deal at all. It like came in, came and went, or it might be the end of the world and people were like, you guys like totally you know should have been more afraid. <laughs> so who knows what's gonna happen? But I mean, this this is the facts. Is right now nobody knows what's gonna happen. I think if we wanted to be extra socially responsible, I would recommend that. People shouldn't be buying new plane tickets and traveling. Just like you know, just stay wherever you guys are. Whether like if I was in Italy, I would just stay in Italy because I'm like, you know what? I'm already here. By me going on a plane, going somewhere else, it's probably not helping the situation of the world. Yeah, and I'm just gonna make the most of where I am. And right now in Italy, you can go to the, all the tourist hotspots, and there's nobody there, so you can take amazing photos and Instagram photos in front of the Colosseum, in front of the, you know, the Palazzo or whatever. And yeah. there'd be nobody there. However, I don't think it's socially responsible for someone to fly from Canada to Italy right now just to take photos, you know, at this place because they have half-off hotels. But at the same time, like, who knows? Like, like, I really, like I don't know. You don't know. Nobody really knows the extent of what it's going to be. If it's going to be completely brought up proportion or, you know, if... Being, you know, 
traveling is, is really going to mess things up. Yeah. So um, I have a friend, an American friend who's now in Italy and he actually extended his trip because he said everything is you know much cheaper there's no lines anywhere and he said it's the most amazing time to be in italy right now that's his perspective um what so some food for thought i saw a really interesting article come out of the uk that said that a lot of brits they have trips to northern italy already booked and if you look at northern italy uh, outside of milan it's mountains and small towns here and there and you know like pristine nature so there's people who live in london who take the tube every day full of random other people in these crowded places work in a big office with a bunch of other people from all over the world because london is very multicultural and they are afraid of going to for example northern italy because they think it's not safe there and it's safe here because that's where they live but the reality is that even if you do go to northern italy and you'll be in these sparsely populated mountain towns or skiing or whatnot you'll have so much little less exposure with different people and you're not going to be on a crowded tube for example you know on a subway every day going to work so this article said that statistically going to a place like northern italy you'll probably be safer even with a higher cases than uh average kind of western life in a big city with the transit options and and let's be real it, most people can't afford to take an uber to and from work every day if they live in london or new york that's like 40 50 bucks each way maybe so if this is a pandemic not saying it, it is but if it is maybe going to northern italy might actually be safer that that, that actually made me thinking i'm not to say that i'm going to go to northern italy right now in fact i cancel my trip there but it's a very interesting food for thought update it is now October 2020. I'm out of toilet paper, guys. I'm here in Sri Lanka. There's no food. I had to eat coconuts for the last four weeks. It, it, it became a, a bigger bigger deal than, than we thought. I'm so sorry for, for doubting all of you, all you, all you social media guys. I'm going to have to stop talking now because I'm so dehydrated from drinking salt water and just eating sand. <laughs> we should have listened to Karen on Facebook. She was the expert all along. <laughs> Man, who knows? Like, seriously, she might be. <laughs> but, I don't know, yeah. It's, uh, I, I think you're right. And, and this is a, a... We're so lucky. I think this is another example and reminder of how fortunate we are as digital nomads, as people who can work remotely, to be able to just be like, you know what? I have options. I don't have to take the subway to work. I don't have to commute into an office. Yeah. You know, I could just stay here in this beach town with like population, you know, 300 people. Yeah. You know, like literally on the beach, there's like never more than a few hundred people. And in all of the beach too, like it's literally like it's, you know, I could just stay here and it could just be, you know, us hiding out. You know, working from home, still earning money, still enjoying life, surfing every day, and if the you know the world goes to crap, I'll just be here for the next six months or a year, or however long it takes, and I'll be fine. I'll still earn money. I'll still enjoy my life. Yeah, that sounds fun. Yeah, and it's a good plan B. I think it's a great you know option versus yeah. my friend. I was just talking to my buddies back in California, and they were saying, "Don't come back here. People are freaking out." There's like insane lines at Costco and all those stores and people just trying to hoard things and like nobody's happy. Everyone's panicky and it's just not a good life. Even even though there's not that much happening there, you know, and the statistically the chances of someone actually getting something are very, very low. Yeah. The chances of your life being inconvenienced by other people panicking is 100%. Yeah. And we're so lucky as remote workers, even if we are quarantined somewhere for 14 days, that's not going to financially ruin us because we can work from anywhere. We could also move where we live as the risks kind of, you know, enter and exit places. And, uh, you know, because we're, we're not tied to a specific location, we can do whatever we want to to kind of minimize that risk. Uh, so I think just being a remote worker is probably the best and what's interesting is like in China with the whole epidemic and whatnot over there a lot of companies that have never had a remote working policy now have implemented remote working because of this like they don't want to go to the office a lot of cities are under quarantine so it's really interesting to see whether this kind of fear might spark a next generation of remote com uh, working communities because if workers work remotely for you know for 14 days or 30 days they come to their bosses say look how productive i was in 30 days look how much work i got done i had less distraction with all the benefits Com companies that are more traditional that never would have considered it in the first place might actually consider it because of this so maybe it's 
it'll be interesting if this will be what transforms the traditional companies to implement remote working policies like this in the future. I love it. I love it. Maybe this is the, the spark that it takes to bring 1 billion remote workers or digital nomads <laughs> by 2021. Man, but imagine how the world would look with a billion nomads. Like I, you know, it's cool. And I would love that from an in- individual perspective of the people we meet, but Imagine a billion people going to Chiang Mai, to Paris, Amsterdam, to... Please don't. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> exactly. Please don't. Go, go somewhere else. <laughs> I, will, I will be living in a yurt in Mongolia if there's a, hundred, if there's a billion digital nomads. Well, but that, I mean, what, what's cool about the way that we travel is we go to places that are less traveled. Ukraine, Sri Lanka, you know, just like... Oman. <laughs> you, you go to Oman. And, and Georgia, yeah. I, yeah, and even Georgia. I mean, I think it just takes a little spark of someone to be like, okay, I've been there. I've scoped it out for you guys. It's safe. There's Wi-Fi. The internet works. You know, here's the cost of living. Here's how I stayed. Follow those blog posts. Come check it out. And that way we can kind of spread out people outside of just Chiang Mai and Bali and, you know, and bring people to new cool places and develop our own communities. Yeah, yeah. Because although there's the digital nomad community, I find that, you know, I really like doing, for example, yoga and meditation. And there's different hubs for that. Like Chiang Mai also has a hub, Kopangan, Bali. And then there's the, you know, for example, the fitness. There's, you know, Muay Thai, uh, you know, spots all over Thailand. Then in Europe, there's the whole polyglot, you know, European community, whatever. So depends on your interest. You can go to different places. And because everyone's different, we're not all going to go to London or New York just because there's jobs there and because there's, you know, a high population already. We're going to go wherever in the world, you know, fits our lifestyle and our interests. And so I think it is sparsely populated, this nomad community, even though we we tend to meet up at the same places during the same time of year, just because it's nice there. Everyone has a different story throughout the year where they've been. Someone went to Mongolia, someone went to, I don't know, like uh, Tajikistan, someone went to Sri Lanka, you know. Ain't nobody going to Tajikistan. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, I said that because of, because, uh, yeah, no, I, I did meet some people. I think they had the Nomad Games there last year. So we know even two oh, guys. Well, I actually do know two so guys. So two there. guys here with us went to Tajikistan. That's why I brought it up, you know? All right. I love it's it. It's one of those places where you'd never think people would go there. But then you hear people that actually, you know, they've met in Tajikistan. Oh, yeah? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. I love it. So, Tal, it's great having you on. Thank you. Thank you, Johnny. Really, really interesting uh, episode. I wish everyone listening uh, the best. I hope that you know, no matter what happens with this coronavirus thing, that everyone's happy, healthy, living their best life. And- I want to say one last thing before we go. Uh, I used to listen to this podcast four years ago, you know, on the subway on the way to work. And I thought, you know, one day, hopefully that can be me. That could be my lifestyle. And here I am four years later. Um, and it, it doesn't have to take four years, you know, it just happens to be that we're here four years later. I just want to say this to all of you back in a Western city commuting or whatever you're doing. It is possible and you can go from dreaming and wanting this lifestyle to surfing in Sri Lanka. So I just want to tell you, keep, you know, your dream alive and do what you can to start the lifestyle because it's possible and it it might seem like this big scary jump between you know uh living in wherever you live and becoming a digital nomad or starting to travel but really it's not that scary just buy the ticket uh, you know with all the risks and whatnot buy the ticket start your journey and yeah i want to tell you that i love it so if you want to follow you or keep it get in touch uh where do you hang out on social media yeah, so website I, I use Facebook mostly, but most people my age don't. So I'm also on Instagram. So I could send both of those to you. Yeah, reach out. I'd be happy to chat to any of you on any topic. Yeah, and just say it just so people can search it right now. Yeah, so uh, my Instagram is backpackertal. Uh, I haven't updated that since my backpacker <laughs> days. Uh, and my Facebook is Tal Brayman. So T-A-L-B-R-A-I-M-A-N. And there's only two of us in the whole world. So it's easy to find. I'm the guy. Okay. And uh, I will also put those in the show notes. This is episode 243, travellikeabosspodcast.com. Also, a big shout out to everyone who's left reviews on the iTunes store. You guys are helping spread the word. The more reviews you leave, the more people find 
the podcast. So big thank you for doing that. If you haven't already, please, please, please go to iTunes, Stitcher, kind of wherever you hang out. Click on write a review. It's a bit clunky, but you guys are all smart. You can figure it out. And this week I want to shout out Tim Paul says Johnny's podcast is on the money. Five stars. This podcast. This is the podcast I always listen to first when it pops up in my queue. I like that Johnny is not afraid to ask about the things that we're interested in. I'm talking about money and actual figures, things we need to know to make informed decisions. So thanks, Tim, for the rating and for all of you for leaving uh, reviews as well and for telling your friends about the, the show. Uh, you know, screenshot it, forward it to a friend, put it in your Instagram story, however you can spread the word. All right. Thanks. Thanks, Dal. See you guys uh, here in Sri Lanka or maybe in Georgia. Nomadsummit.com for tickets and info. And uh, yeah, hope to, hopefully you guys are going to do well. Cheers. Thank you for listening to the Travel Like a Boss podcast. If you want to hear more, including the bonus, how to choose the perfect niche episode, join our mailing list at travellikeabosspodcast.com. See you next week. And remember, if you want to travel like a boss, you need to be your own boss. So start your online business today and start living the lifestyle you've always dreamed of.